Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. My name is Andy Boyd. Today, I'm talking with Robert Lashley about his debut novel, I Never Dreamed You'd Leave in Summer. Robert, welcome back to New Books in Performing Arts. I'm glad to be back, and um, I'm glad to be back in front of your listeners. Great. So, Robert, you published three books of poetry, and now you have a novel. Why did you decide it was it was time to write a novel? What attracted you to that form? Um, I the the characters in regards to the novel were in my head for a long time. And there were a lot of internal conflicts in regards to what was going on to my city and people in my life who had passed away. And I decided to process and use the, the novel form and to use characters that were both in me but not of me, that ran away in their own ways, but then in the end kind of Mir- like mirrored some of the things that I've been processing. Um, like you understand like the, the personal and impersonal dynamic of, of, of characters and, and, um, mm-hmm. and, and also just the, some of the political turmoils that were been going on at the, in Tacoma in the Northwest. Yeah, for sure. It seems like your, your poetry is very, I, I'm not sure if it's all autobiographical, but it feels very personal. And I wonder if the novel form was maybe a way to kind of externalize some of those conflicts that you deal with in other ways in your poetry. Would you say that's true? Yes, it is true. Um, there, there's a personal aspect. Um, you like you understand how you can't write autobiography. Like, yet you have to paint a picture, and, and the picture has to to say things in what it doesn't say, as well as what as what it says, and. Like one of them, and and I wanted to use the novel form, and I wanted to use the epistolary form uh, in this novel, and as a way to process that as well. One of the things with I don't with this with this novel is that it says more in what it doesn't say than in what it says. Um, it is the journey of. Of, of Albert is sort of unbecoming of age story. It's sort of anti Bildungs Roman that um, and it breaks a lot of conventions of the protest novel, the quote unquote conventional coming of age um, of a black black man's story, young black man's story, while working in the form as. Um, it's an it's as well. It's kind of like in a very unreliable conventional narrator. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that your book, I think, subverts about that that kind of the coming of age form, and especially the coming of age form in black literature, is that the coming of age of black male protagonists is often kind of at the expense of black women supporting characters who are you know, harmed or victimized in, in one way or another as a sort of stepping stone to the main character's uh, self-realization. You know, I mean, I think Native Son is like the most obvious example of this, but there are, there are many others, and you you point that out in the book. Um, what are the ways in which you kind of wanted this book about this young 
male character to also be engaging with black feminist thought. I wanted it to do that. And partly because of my own experiences and partly because on, um, I wanted to write the book I wanted to read in regards to the the sort of conventional coming of age story, um, and that, and and in regards to the personal, like I was like my education as a writer primarily came from three beauty shops in Tacoma. And in the last two years, everybody in the in those beauty shops had died. And what happened was also happened in locally in Tacoma that there was a documentary that highlighted um uh, a prison activist who shot a friend of mine. And one of the documentary's theories were that my neighborhood, my old neighborhood, particularly the home next to where I first had a stable house, was the reason that um, this activist, who was now free, um, Kamanti Carter, shot Corey Pittman. And what happened was, like, at the same time that my Aunt Helen had died, like, this documentary, this documentary had, um, did a sweep over of her house, um, in the, in, in, in the movie, and where, where, where you had a voiceover blaming the neighborhood for, um, Kamati Carter murdering Corey Pittman, and it just hurt so much that I had to write as complex and vivid a tribute to my Aunt Helen because it just, it, it still tears my stomach up to, to see her being portrayed this way on a national stage. The documentary was Since I've Been Down. It's not, it has its merits, but the way that it shamed the only people in this world who loved me for the longest time the way that it shamed my narratives, and the way that it shamed my neighborhood for wanting to be safe and wanting to, it just, I can't tell you the unbelievable pain. And one of the reasons why I wrote this novel, one of the reasons why I wrote Mr. Layla in the beauty shop was to um, correct the record in regards to the working class black women who worked so hard to keep, um, my neighborhood safe. Mm -hmm. I hope I understand. Hope that answers your question. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I feel like that really comes through in the novel. That feeling of wanting to portray. It's not like it's a particularly rosy portrait necessarily of the neighborhood. I mean, it certainly acknowledges the realities of of crime and poverty and violence, but and 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 addiction, but also that that yeah that these are are spaces that are also spaces of beauty and of of intellectual engagement and and you know the character albert like like you described in your own life learns you know learns more 
it, even in terms of like formal, like intellectual book learning from these women at the beauty parlor than he does from Dr. Everett, who becomes sort of his, his mentor, um, who, you know, who we can, we can talk about as a character as well. But before we do that, I, I'd like for you to kind of describe Albert to us as your protagonist. Like, uh, you know, what, what kind of kid is he? I'll describe Albert this way. One of the more redeeming parts of the movie, one of the more compelling parts of the movie of Since I've Been Down, the, the movie that I, that I just mentioned, was that it profiles the officers um, who used to patrol the neighborhood. And these officers go into the hundreds of Polaroids they had of 11 to 13-year-old children that they would that they would stop and frisk. And I mentioned this because my mother and my grandmother would, um, would, would got me up in the morning to go to school so that I could subvert those officers. Because if they didn't, Albert could have, like I could have easily been Albert. There are a lot of young men and young women in Hilltop who had to go through the sort of stop and frisk middle school officers who were basically destroyed at at the age of 13 and the age of 14 who are also destroyed by gang members who came in and offered protection um the there's a there's so many people in my city and so many people in my neighborhood who just went through a tremendous amount of pain. And, and I, I describe like, like Albert is, is, is just really bright, but, and he just felt, he just got caught up at very young in a very, in a very met in a very messed up dynamic in that neighborhood. And I, and I, I, I was frustrated by him. I yelled at him in this book, and and, but I feel for him in a lot of ways, because I know, therefore, but the grace of God go I. Yeah. And one of the most compelling and and tragic parts of the book too is how you portray a, a certain kind of strain of, we could call it maybe masculinist black politics, uh, which is a politics of kind of self-empowerment, group empowerment, but often also a, a politics of misogyny, anti-Semitism, uh, violence, um, which comes through in the character of, of Dr. Everett and his syllabus, which, you know, uh, Albert has the, the good sense and the, the feminist education to be able to, to look at and say, really, we're reading Soul on Ice in, in 2020? Uh, is that is that really the, the most relevant uh, uh, book for us to be reading now? Or we're reading you know, uh, Native Son, we're reading these kind of like angry black man books from the 60s and earlier. Um, what was the kind of substance of your critique of that tradition? And and how do you see that tradition exerting influence uh, today? Before I became uh, a known poet in the Northwest, I would listen to my grandmother and all my aunts talk about Amiri Baraka as if he was a loon and a nut, but also someone 
<laughs> Bradley made fun of them. Like, even in his quote-unquote beloved poems, he talks about all the mediocre colored girls in Newark and all the things that black women can't do. And even in his most beloved times, like, he talked all this mess about, like, you know, what black women poets couldn't do. He, he talked shit about Wendelin Brooks, about how... And then when I read the political stuff, I mean, the murder poems, and, like, I thought, wow, this guy's a nut. Like, well, and then I become a public poet, and that, and that, and then you see this poet and become a poet in social justice era, and I see so many people who think of him as a lord and savior. Um, one of the reasons that I got banned from certain places in New York is I like is I I was one of the first black poets to say fuck it, like fuck Amiri Baraka. I mean, Crow Jane ends with a Jewish woman dead in a gutter in the most sickening fashion. Um, and people want me to, and people want to call him uh, a, a, a hero for that, or any of the 30 to 40 murder poems that he put out. The, I mean, the, I mean, I mean, the tail gunner poem, the half-white college student poem, or any of the murder plays, The Slaves, or um, Experimental Death Kit. I mean, it was like, I came from a tradition of African-American readers, and then I go online and see all these people who have this Disneyland radical version, and then afterwards in this internet social justice you know, became more prevalent and you see these sort of grips and then you go online and you read about people calling Huey Newton a feminist. Huey Newton murdered women, Andrew. Like, like, one of the reasons why I, like, Albert finally goes deep and finds out, reads articles well, I mean, like the party's over in New Times, nineteen seventy-eight, and reads um, the Shadow of the Panther is just just because he realizes that so much of this sort of Disneyland internet mythologizing, this sort of men's club, that is um, that that is woke Twitter um, or social justice Twitter, and just and he, like like. He he felt like like he he was trying to get out of that dysfunctional shit. I mean, from the hood and working at the beauty salon, and then he goes to sees you know Professor Everett, who is this who like a lot of six like brothers who make some success that they feel like they're owed some certain things or and they have this sort of disturbed vision of 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 masculinity like oh they made it they can they they like like they they feel like they've earned the right to treat women a certain way and um uh, and and when albert sees this he becomes just tremendously disillusioned yeah yeah that's great
Um, and one of the other things, not only does he learn about black feminist literature through the beauty shop, but he learns about, you know, kind of classic Western literature. Like one of the women, I forget which one is, is reading, um, uh, it's, it's not Beowulf. It's, um, or is it? Sorry, which, I forget which, which ancient epic poem, uh, is one of them is reading. Could you remind me? It's Albert's mother. Um, Albert's mother. Albert's, um, like, Albert's, um, Veneta and in, in, uh, uh, um, in Estelle, like, they have a very, they, they had a very complex and very haunting relationship where they were that first generation to quote unquote bus from school and that, that took so much out of them. And the way that Mr. Layla um, it helps and tries to help them both, one of the things that I wanted to do was create human characters. I didn't want to create plaster sites. I wanted to create characters that show the very human and very real struggles that that that, that human beings and black women go through. And one of the things that I wanted to do is I wanted, like, I had like three or four readers go through this, like a fine, was a fine tooth comb. Like I didn't want to be Chris Rock and make, and like go into black women's spaces and sort of make fun of them for a hipster joke. I mean, I knew a lot, but I, I also, the more I knew, the more that I realized that I didn't. And mm -hmm. like, I, I, and like their 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 dynamics of of like there's love there there was love for it um was there was tremendous amount of love with Yelela and Vanetta's um um and 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 Yelela and and Estelle and these and that they they were Vanetta and Estelle were the people that were they were Miss Yelela's first. They were first assistants. Like, like, Veneta did everything that she could to, um, to, 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 to help her get funding and grants so that she could have, like, the backup money so that sisters clearly get, you know, get their hair right, um, and, 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 and have that sort and have the, and, and deal with, with the quote unquote outside world without, Without losing, without losing their 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 own complex identities, because sometimes, you know, people want to have natural hair. Sometimes people want the stylistic art of uh, of a, of a, of a weave. And there's so many, you know, different kinds. And sometimes people have different hair. Women have different, you know, scalps. And and I I, I wanted to portray that complexity. Yeah. Is part of the tragedy for Al Albert that he's kind of caught between this masculinist politics that he knows is morally bankrupt and a feminist politics that he feels he can't fully belong to as a man, as a young man? I think that it's I I I, I, I see where you're going with that question and I and I understand where you what, what um and I think one of the reasons why he feels that he can't belong is that he's so racked with guilt over his past. 
that when he realized, like, when he realizes what he did to women and what, you know, his, 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 his over, his gang overlord who abused him at a very early age made him do, but that he ended up doing, um, that, that he is beset by guilt and he's beset by the very human, um, response that the, that the beauty shop has when Kyle, Estelle's biological son, sets him up. One of the key components of this book, on the second half of this book, is when uh, the beauty shop kicks him out. Uh, after Estelle goes to the beauty, sh beauty shop and says, you know, you know, says, says Albert had Albert had corrupted my son and Albert had did Albert was a drug dealer and Albert wasn't hacked. And and I read that and I think everybody in that beauty shop had a right not to believe Albert. Because he was Estelle who had forty years of history, history that had recently turned bad, but had years of history at this beauty shop. And here was a dude that had been good for about a year. Uh -huh. And also, you know, so many women in so many places and so many aspects of so many neighborhoods, they were expected, especially black women, are expected to be a forgiveness factory or a compliment factory. If a brother does either something, something really good, a few good things, you know, they come to one and demanding compliments. And here was someone with, uh, who started off with a record and a pattern of behavior that shouldn't have been in that beauty shop. That's why, um, you later, um, sense, you know, gives that hard line. Like, if you mess up, I will cut the bacon off your back. Like, you are here on a probationary period. You are here not to take from any of these women. You are here to give. And he does that. And the central tragedy of him getting kicked out and them realizing that his Kyle is full of shit and realizing that they made a mistake and they make overtures to him toward the end of the book. And Andre can't, and Andre try, and Andre, his mentor that, who Albert is writing to, tries to make overtures to him. But Albert can't accept because Albert is so wrapped up with guilt. And the tragic dynamic, like when they get into drugs and the relationship that he has um, uh, with Judy is that, um, you know, they, you know, in the beginning of the book, where Albert meets Judy, Albert used to be a little bit of a bully to her at high school, um, making fun of her ethnicity and heritage, and 
in, in Judith just says, you know, I'm not, and like Judith says, I don't want to deal with you in college. Like you made my high school life miserable. And that's the first yeah. time that, um, how, like Albert realizes that there's things that he can't, that, that he can't undo with an I'm sorry, that he can't undo with a sort of, you know, ashy hotep, you know, I'm a black man and I made a mistake and he can't, that he can't, un, there's a pain that he can't unmatch, he can't, that he can't, he can't yeah. fix. And one of the things, um, and one of the tragedies of the book is like when they come, is that they develop a friendship and when they both run a foul of Professor Everett and they're tied into these political forces where they're the only two people that that understands each other in this in this sort of political campus uproar where so many people think of them as undoing this this civil rights hero, this undoing this great black man, and they have a relationship, but Judith can't trust him. Because in the back of her mind, like he is still the person who called her Big Booty Judy. And when they get into drugs, that's why she takes the gun, she just like she gets the gun at him because that pain is still there. I hope I haven't talked too much. <laughs> Maybe a slight spoiler alert is uh, is warranted, but I think that's all right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I one of the one of the uh, this is a book that is sort of built on other books, and you know, uh, your main character Albert is a reader, and he talks about what he's reading, and he talks about what it's doing for him. And one of the books that he talks about is uh, is Grendel, the the great novel by John Gardner, which looks at the Beowulf story from the point of view of the monster. And one of the things that I think is really amazing about that book is it doesn't do the kind of Disney thing where we say, we're going to see this story from the monster side of you and we'll understand that the monster's not really a monster. Like in Grendel, we see it from the monster's point of view and he's charming and funny and he's a monster. You know, like he has done monstrous things. He's He's done unforgivable, maybe things. You know, I don't know if uh, if, if you believe that anything is unforgivable uh, or not, but certainly does horrible things. And and that becomes a way that Albert kind of sees himself. You know, he understands the trauma that he has suffered that has led him to do horrible things. But he also knows that those things are things he did. You know, you can't just wash them off of him like uh, like water off a duck's back. So, I mean, I I feel like that's one of the really hard problems that your your book is grappling with is you know how do you forgive yourself and how do you forgive yourself maybe if the people who you hurt can't or won't forgive you uh, and how do you move forward out of that uh that that hurt that you've caused you know because i think your book is a a, a really heartbreaking illustration of the necessity for doing that because if you don't then it becomes your whole life it consumes you but also how do you do that in a way that isn't cheap you know, that's not that cheap grace. Oh, no, there's a question buried somewhere in there. Maybe you can find it. <laughs> that's a very deceptive comment. I think that one of the reasons why I that this book came out the way it came out is that I was in these social circles and I 
I saw a lot of people just get thrown away for nothing. Like, like I started out, and especially in the, um, like Seattle, Tacoma, and Portland areas, like I um, like there were protests and there there were podcasts against like certain certain people and certain writers, and and I'm for you know you know personal responsibility, um, but. There are epi- there are episodes and about that highlighted, you know, writers of color who quote unquote need to be shamed for um for quote unquote, you know, having relationships with white women or quote unquote Karen, which is a word that I'm very tired of. Um because in like I, and a lot of my friends that agreed with so much, that still agree with so much of what it, what it, of social justice and see racism as something that's very real, but wants to, but don't, but don't think a lot step with everything that activists believe in, just stop barking. I mean, like I was in a political um, organization and I got fired from it and my friends got fired from it because these anarchists said that we were just a bunch of uh, neoliberal conservatives and white women who and white women who just wanted to sleep with each other. And that's it. And I'm like, and just like I wanted to write something about a parable about just something about the idea of grace and the idea of like who needs it, who deserves like who needs it, who can handle it and who and the fact that we need it a little more of it and it's it affects like the idea of grace and shame it affects people in complex ways. I hope that answers your question. I was uh, I was listening to an interview with Maya Angelou a couple of days ago. It talks about the importance of forgiveness, but that forgiveness can mean I wish you the best, but you're not welcome in my home. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't have to be we're 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 friends now. We're all buddy buddy. Like that that it's it's okay sometimes for forgiveness to look like um, to have that that sort of tough love quality to it. You know, I I think that's a hard balance to strike between accepting the full humanity of people, accepting that people are going to mess up, they're going to need second chances, but also that you sometimes have to protect yourself from people who mean you harm. That's that's really real. Um, my angel has a, a more complex career than her, um, than, than, than a lot of her fans and detractors can grant. Um, and I, um, and that's a real comment. I wonder if part of, I mean, I think part of what happens in the book is, and maybe this was me reading something into it that wasn't explicitly there, but I, I think it, it was. And you already mentioned, you know, there's there's things in the book that aren't maybe explicitly in the book. But 
it seems to me in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, I grew up in, in university place, uh, you know, when I was three to, I, when I was 16. So I, I know the area decently well. And in a lot of progressive spaces in the Pacific Northwest, it's, it's a lot of white people. And I think sometimes that creates a dynamic where a, a black person who maybe has views that are not in line with, you know, the majority or even a plurality of the black community of that area is able to kind of stand up and say, I'm going to be the spokesman for the black people of this city and can get a lot of white people who don't really have much contact with black people to accept them as that spokesperson. Is that is that part of the dynamic that you're criticizing here with Dr. Everett? I mean, I, I get the sense that a lot of his his kind of supporters on, on campus are people who really don't know what they're talking about. Yes, um, very much so. Um one of the hard things about the Pacific Northwest and the sort of, um, I'm going to just be blunt, um, the sort of elite race, race reductionist um, uh, politics of having a quote-unquote black spokesman is that you took away the, like, the middle class kid, the, the working class kid with complex taste, or the, or it, it, it took away, like, like the like the 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 sister at the at, at at the at the Waffle Hut that you know likes some of your stuff, doesn't like some of your stuff, but thinks some of your stuff is wonderful that you could have a complex engagement with. That when. The spokesman says, this person is an Uncle Tom. There's nobody to say, oh, well, th that's bullshit. Because everybody is so scared of, quote unquote, being called a racist um, uh, by the quote unquote spokesman. Like, which is one of the reasons why I didn't read, I, I didn't read him a lot of places for a while. Because... Um, I was like I was considered in a lot of internet social circles a quote unquote inauthentic um, black writer because I didn't agree in lockstep with a lot of what was going on. There's a detail in the book where Albert gets really into Joni Mitchell, and I think that's such a wonderful like little microcosm of that process because like I know a lot of black people who like Joni Mitchell, you know. But like Joni Mitchell, liking Joni Mitchell does not fit that aesthetic of like what it means to be the black spokesman writer guy. You know, that's that's not that's not the image. Like I, I like Albert goes into the, like has these sort of experiences where he's where he's trying like new things in college, and he's trying to you know he's he's he's, he's looking into the cultures different other than his own and and. In, in in his in, in his friendship with Judas and um where, where um and he get like like he gets rejected by um the professors the the, the professors class like 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 be, and that's kind of me processing the sort of you know the the very popular you know don't listen to white artists or don't listen to quote unquote, you know, white authors, which is, which is, which is really like painful for me as a, as, as a, 
as a thinker because I started out, you know, my Uncle Mo's favorite poet, um, the Uncle Mo was a World War II veteran, and he didn't have the voice on, you know, war, war took the voice away from him for another process. So his hero was Carl Shapiro. The, um, I didn't mean to rhyme that, but it, it is what it was. His hero was the Chicago poet who wrote, um, who wrote these, these superb poems about processing war. And also, you know, you have to be a citizen of the world. Like, I remember where we had Paul Salon's birthday, and this was at a time when he was really chic in Seattle or Tacoma to write, you know, don't we read white writers and they had the 100th birthday of Paul Salon and like what Paul Salon did to quote unquote restore you know um restore different languages from the damage that Nazism um did because people don't understand that like what the Nazis did outside of atrocities was to quote unquote change the German language to eliminate anything that had um you know, Jewish influence in it, but a lot of his poems that, that uh, like, were, were bringing back and restoring, like, what the, what some of the, some of the things that the Nazis had damaged in regards to the language, and there is, and, and I, I believe that, that, you know, that, that artists should, you know, try to reach, like, like I love the preacher in um in in Howard's Inn where she says only connect. I still believe in that. I'm still a universalist, and I don't care how, how what what trouble it gets me into. It is I will I will ride that until my wheels fall off. And I still and I still think of Toni Morrison's eulogy on for James Baldwin. Where, where, where she said, "You made the American, you made you, you made the American language honest." I believe that artists and outsider artists have a responsibility to go in to the canon and find things, um, find things that are worth saving, and there are things that are worth saving, and I, and I, and 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 create things that are new and create things that can make the culture better instead of saying don't read this person or ban this person or uh, a, a popular thing in the northwest is like only you know ban um or, or like or like white people can't get this grant you know the problem with like having grants that ban um you know all like like ban white people is that the people that they consider the man or the system, they don't need that grant. Tell my kids do. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, I, I feel like that's um you know, something I find really valuable in Ralph Ellison's work. And I think he's maybe fallen a little bit out of favor in recent years, but I think he's uh an incredible artist, is that sense of hybridity being an important part of forming your identity, that, that you have to have the freedom to say, you know, yes, I'm going to listen to Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington for him, but I'm also going to read Dostoevsky. 
and I'm also going to read Tolstoy, and I'm also going to, you know, read Sartre, and and all of these things are going to be an important uh, important contributions to Ralph Ellison figuring out what it means for him to be a black man in 1950. And I feel like today we've gotten to be. I mean, I, I obviously, I you know, I think that publishing poetry, you know, performing arts have have been racist for for a long time and, and exclusionary and and all those things are true but i also think that there's a sense in which we've lost the faith in art to communicate you know like that there's this idea you can never understand someone's experience if it's not your own experience and i always kind of wonder like well then why are we doing any of this you know i mean isn't not that i i can ever fully understand somebody else's experience i mean you know and from a philosophical standpoint i feel like yes there's always going to be a barrier but if art can't break through that barrier and and communicate something of the experience of somebody who's not like you, then then why do it? Why do it at all? You know, the thing that I would add to that is I think what is lost in regards to um, younger people in a in a in a younger generation is I talk to a lot of young kids who are processing traumas that they didn't think that they would have to process and they haven't had the sort of rituals and personal training to quote-unquote cope with these things to cope with problems that they have that won't be solved easily the problems that if you look at them in their face and look at how they have uh, how they have fermented how they that they have dealt that that can be painful one of the things that i've noticed like with myself the differences between myself and younger people is that i grew up in a time that had black radio that had black media and had places that teaches you how to cope the a teacher like have that sort of blues aesthetic that ralph ellison was talking so there are a lot of angry kids, and one of the allures of anger and, and, and outrage and outrage politics is that it talks to your wound, and it, and it feeds your way. It feeds these kids' wounds. And so I, I, I agree with what you're saying, that, that I, um, and I also, like, one of my, and the thing I would add to that is that also add to that, it's one of my responsibilities for these kids that are processing is to try to reinstate, to, to, to try to like talk about the, the blue, like, right, the, like the blues aesthetic that Ralph Ellison was talking about and the sort of cultural coping mechanisms. And it's like, especially, there's an emphasis on culture. Like, I, I talked to college kids who've never been to a cookout. I've talked to a college kids who've never, you know, had a house party. I talked to a lot of college kids who all they know is fight, 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 fight the man. And their process will be these strong men and strong women and or strong any sort of binary. And that can bite you if you don't know how to deal with it. I know I went a different way for your question. But, uh, but I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think that's such an important part that like, that yes, it's, 
it's it's important to protest. It's important to fight injustice, but it's also important to be able to live with injustice because it's not going away, you know. So it's a it's a struggle that's that's going to take more than one generation. And I I think those resources for, you know, how do you not accept the world as it is, but learn to live through the hard times and the injustices. I I think that there's maybe not as much of an emphasis on that as there there should be. One of the things, let me find my way to a question because I have to go for a question in a while. But uh, yeah, yeah, uh, it's my fault. Um, and and I think one of the things that is scary about your book that I found frightening is how protest politics, radical politics can become a form of social currency and can be a way people build a career. Um, and I guess my question for you is, as somebody who's work, you know, I don't think your work is reducible to protest literature but I think protest literature is a part of what you're up to. I wonder how do you stay honest? How do you how do you stay in it for the right reasons? How do you not, I don't know, how do you not become a, a career protester? I have a series of readers, a series of people, and a series, series of networks where I do what I'm told. Outside of them, I'm irreverent, I'm rebellious, I'm elegant, I'm snarky, and I am a wild horse. But there are people who I lean on and who who I do what they tell me to do. And I and that's how I keep myself. Yeah. And it's a, it seems like it's a small group that you are accountable to in that way, right? Yes, I I think um one of the things that um one of the great joys of my life is that there are a group of a thousand to two thousand people in the Northwest that have read me for fifteen years, and who have been, and who have been my, you know, Greek chorus. And sometimes when I needed to, um, one of the reasons why I talk about my aunts were they came up during a time when they were they they lived black nationalism they were disillusioned by black nationalism so when they saw me as somebody with talent who would listen to them they trained me to be who i am they go through my poems they would they would like they would give me guidance they would give me needed correction because they wanted to see someone who represented them who cared for them, who loved them, and who wouldn't tell them that they were mean and stupid. I love the part, this is such a small detail in your book, but I, I love the part where Albert is volunteering in the VFW soup kitchen, and he says that it makes him feel better because he is acting as a servant rather than a, a king. And that seems like such a deeply sub subversive attitude to take that, you know, I mean, it's also a very Christian attitude, right? I mean, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. But it seems like that is still one of the many things about, you know, the, the gospel that is still deeply against the American grain, deeply against our capitalist individualistic culture. Um, and he doesn't, he doesn't go in that direction. He doesn't follow that through. But that, that felt like a, a kind of pinprick of light to me in the book, that if he had followed that idea a little further, maybe he would have been able to figure some stuff out. Is that is, is that kind of a, a breadcrumb that you put in the book to kind of suggest 
not in a preachy way, but just in a, hey, maybe, maybe this is something we could try. You, it's very perceptive that you notice that. And the thing that I would add is that it is a, it is in it is it is in the Bible, but the specific ritual is also in the Torah. And that Judas, you know, once he gets, once she gets to know Albert, it's like, okay, you want to be with my friend? You perform this ritual. You come through with this ritual with me. And he does. And in the sort of kind of, sorry, I would call it a cleaning ritual and redemption for him in his gross ritual. Um, that I, and I think what happens in, in, in the book that like stress besets them both like a wave and they, and they both get away from that in, in, in very complex ways. But I think it's very perceptive that you, that you notice that. Well, Robert, I could, I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, I want to thank you so much for writing this book. I, I found it, as I've said, you know, very moving, but also hard to read at points, uh, because it, you know, it, it challenged some of the ways that I've come to think about art, think about the world, think about what we're doing as artists. Um, and also just like where we're at as a culture and, and, um, the ways that the kind of social media chorus has become, you know, uh, a tool that can be manipulated by skillful manipulators uh, who, you know, you might not realize that's what they're up to at first until, you know, it takes a, a while to figure out that these people are grifters, but, but they are. And, and, uh, and that's, <laughs> it's, it's something I've been thinking about a lot. It's like, you know, uh, how do we, how do we exist in a world that is demanding us make such quick judgments is asking so much of us is asking so much of our attention at all times. How do we stay true to a, a set of, of values that are still, uh, necessary as, as ways to, you know, get through this, this thing we call life. You know, I mean, I, I, I really found myself thinking about those issues a lot reading your book and in the time since I've read it. So thank you so much for giving me a lot to chew on. You're welcome. And the last thing that I would say is one of the things that I can do is when I talk to people is to realize that when I'm, that, 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 that I'm not fallible. I, you know, I didn't think I was fallible before, but I think especially now that like realize that I'm fat, like I'm fallible and um, realize like that, that, that I can be wrong and, and it's okay to just disagree and it's okay to have conversation and it's okay to speak freely and that we should be allowed to be, to speak freely. Once again, the book is, I never dreamed you'd leave in summer. I'm talking, I spoke today with, uh, Robert Lashley. Uh, I hope everyone runs out and gets this uh, wonderful book and, uh, Robert, let me know next time you have another book out, we'll have you back on the show. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for your time and thank you for your support.